Welcome to today's Community Cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. This morning, we're starting a new sermon series, and we're calling it, Tell Me the Stories of Jesus. And uh, if you have grown up Methodist like I have, you know that there's a hymn, Tell Me the Stories of Jesus. I love to... Anybody know that song? Yep. Okay, so one person. Great. (laughs) Off to a good start this morning. So uh, it's it's a wonderful hymn. Tell me the stories of Jesus that I love to hear, right? Oftentimes, we we hear the same stories of Jesus over and over and over again, right, in the church, because there are a lot of stories of Jesus that are familiar, and they have a great message, and they have a lot of great meaning. But through this sermon series, I want to talk about some of the stories of Jesus that we don't hear that often, A lot of times you might hear them in a small group situation. You might have a conversation about them. You might read through them in your scriptures, but sometimes you gloss over them because they're not something that's easily preached. Well, we're going to start off with a wild one today, okay? So we're starting in the book of Mark, and we're going to hear a story about a man who was possessed by demons. And we're going to talk through that today. But first, I want to read you uh, a quick short story. There's a pastor named uh, Pastor Sean Thomas from First Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas, and he tells this story. He says, during the Second World War, when Hitler conquered France, he immediately shut down all the borders to keep people from leaving France. But one small border town saw its population diminish rapidly, so the Germans searched for the answer. It turned out that this town had a cemetery that was straddling the border with their neighboring country which was free from Nazi control. And so I looked at a map, and I think it was probably Switzerland that they were were on the border of between France and Switzerland. So the locals opened up an ancient gate in the wall of the cemetery, and for some reason, they kept having funerals, but they kept walking right through that gate into Switzerland. They walked to their freedom. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a story of a man who also found freedom from a cemetery in the story of the Gerasene demoniac, a man who was possessed by evil spirits, but he found freedom among the tombs by the power of Jesus. The incredible thing about this man is that three of our four gospels tell this story because it became so important. Each one adding a little little bit of depth and a different perspective. And all of those stories add up to a story with some pretty amazing implications. So let's start in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay because we'll have it on the screen. But this is a story we have to read together. So let's read it starting in verse 1. We're going through verse 20. It says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. 
A large herd of pigs was feeding among the, uh, sorry, among the nearby hills. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down a steep bank and into the lake where they drowned. Those tending to the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legions of demons sitting there. He was dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how the Lord had mercy on you. So the man went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis, sorry, Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is an incredible story, friends. And in order for us to really kind of dig in, I'm breaking it down into three different parts. The the time before meeting Jesus, what happened in the moments that he met Jesus, and then what was the result of him meeting Jesus. So as we look uh, at at the story here, uh, in order for us to see the difference in what meeting Jesus makes, we have to dig into the life before, right? I don't know about you guys, but I think each of us has a life before Jesus, don't we? For some of us, I I mean, I was raised in the church, but even there was a time before I really knew who Jesus was, that my life was very different from what it looks like now. You might have heard me before mention uh, that I, like I said, I grew up in church, but it was in the ninth grade that I had an encounter with Jesus for the first time, and I recognized that, that God was alive and he wanted to do something with my life. So from the time I was born, basically, until I was 14 years old, I lived like Jesus was there, but he wasn't real to me, right? And so there was a time in the seventh grade, and I know this sounds really silly, but in the seventh grade, I was like the boy with the foulest mouth you could ever imagine because I thought it was cool, right? Like the girls dug me. I was the new guy in school. I had a foul mouth. I was really cool. Uh, And and so there was a time before really knowing Jesus that my life looked different, And so I don't know if you guys are like me or not, but uh, many of us, when we have an encounter with Jesus, things begin to really shift. And I hope that's what happens with us. So as we look at the story, we have to recognize that there was a time, clearly, where this man had no idea who Jesus was. He didn't know him, didn't, uh, lived in the tombs. I don't think Jesus regularly visited graveyards, but in this instance, Jesus does, right? It says that this man lived among the tombs. Now, and, and when we look at cemeteries in our country and kind of around our world today, they don't look like they did in the first century in the ancient Near East, right? In the ancient Near East, there were literally tombs built into the sides of uh, uh, hills and mountains. And so they were dug out kind of caves. And so this man basically lived in a cave, those caves would have been used for probably one person or a whole family that they would be buried in these caves. According to Luke chapter 8, verse 27, he also didn't wear any clothes. So this man ran around naked, living in tombs in caves, 
And he was clearly known by the people around the region because they had come to bind him, right? It says that he was bound by chains, hand and foot, and nothing could keep him still. He was constantly on the move. He was so strong that he would break those chains apart and he would run wild in the hills and and in the tomb area and in the cemeteries. So he was naked, living in a graveyard, And I'm sure that he didn't have a regular bathing schedule either. So I imagine he was a relatively smelly, naked person who was out of his mind. I wonder how he ate to sustain himself. Like, did did he have family that came and brought him food into the the cemetery? Were there there people in the surrounding villages who had pity on this man and, and provided for him in some way? There's no story about that. There's no scriptural reference here, but he had to sustain himself somehow. So what did that look like? And where was his family? Did he have a wife? Did he have parents? I mean, I'm sure he had parents, but it doesn't mention them participating in this man's life at all at this point. He's alone living in a cemetery, naked, without food, without shelter, He was alone. Scripture tells us that he was stronger than anybody else. Almost like a supernatural strength. Night and day, it says, he would cry out among the tombs. What did he he yell about? What did he say? What was he screaming at the top of his lungs in the middle of the night? Night and day, all day long. What was he saying? And it says he also cut himself with stones. He was doing harm to himself. And we have to stop here for a second because I have to say this. If you're hurting yourself to cope with any sort of emotional issues or or parts of your past, then you need to seek help, okay? There are people who are here willing to talk with you. There's um, a self-help hotline that we can get the phone number to and we can post that in our comments but it is not okay for us to hurt ourselves. So part of what we recognize today is that self-harm is, it's a sign of mental health issues. Self-harm from the National Alliance on Mental Illness definition is this. Self-harm is not in itself a mental illness, but it is a behavior that indicates a need for better coping skills and that mental illness is present. Several mental illnesses are associated with it, including borderline personality disorder, depression, eating disorders, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Self-harm occurs most often during the teenage and young adult years, though it can happen later in life. Those at the most risk are people who have experienced trauma, neglect, or abuse. For instance, if a person grew up in an unstable family, it might have become a coping mechanism. If a person binge drinks or uses illicit drugs, they are at greater risk of self-injury because alcohol and drugs lower self-control. Friends, there was a time in youth ministry where I dealt with a lot of teenagers who began to use self-harm as a coping mechanism. And through counseling and the help of mental health professionals, we were able to get folks help. But oftentimes, we'll never know because a lot of times it's uh, young people who cut themselves and hide what they're doing to themselves. But it's a sign that they need help. And it was clearly a sign of this man that he needed help too, 
And what's absolutely insane to me is that Jesus knows this, right? I don't think that it's by any accident that Jesus shows up. He crosses the lake in a boat and he ends up right there at this cemetery at the right time to meet this man. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? To show up at the right time to do the right thing for people who are in need. If we saw something like this man today in our world, we would assume that he has mental health issues, right? If you've spent any amount of time downtown, you might have come across a person that looks almost identical to this situation. Clearly, there's more going on from the story of Mark than just mental illness. Scripture tells us that this man is possessed by evil spirits. From everything that we read about this guy, there is something spiritual happening in his life. There's a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil at work in his life. It's not something we talk about much today, right? We don't talk about people being um, invaded by the spiritual realm. We don't talk about spirits and demons. It's not something we really have conversation about, but scripture tells us it's a real thing. And this man was being manifest in the midst of a spiritual battle. And Jesus shows up and he's about to rock his world. So now we've seen what life looked like this guy before Jesus met him. Let's see what it looks like when he has an encounter with Christ, right? It begins with Jesus sailing across the lake to be at this place where this man happened to be. And like I mentioned earlier, it's not by accident that Jesus shows up. So I want to read this to you. This comes from verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, the man with the impure spirit came from the tombs to meet Jesus. So he ran to Jesus to meet him at the boat. He saw Jesus coming, right? So later on in verse 6, it says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell at his knees in front of Jesus. So can you imagine Jesus like getting out of the boat? Like he's, and he's not, let me be very clear. It talks only about Jesus in the scripture, but Jesus is not alone. He's with his disciples. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what scripture was right before this moment. But uh, Jesus shows up with the disciples and he's getting out of the boat and a naked, screaming, strong man comes at Jesus and kneels at his feet. It's a very strange situation. And immediately it says, this man who was uh, invaded by spirits recognized Jesus. So do you know what it means to kneel at somebody's feet, to fall at somebody's feet, right? We recognize that, you know, it's a sign of, of a recognition of somebody's authority and power. The definition of that phrase means to lay before someone in reverence and submission. So we recognize in this moment that Jesus has authority over this man. He's re revering Jesus and he recognizes that they are having to submit to the power of Christ. It also means to be enchanted or fascinated by someone. And I think all four of those words describe what's happening in this moment. The synonyms for this phrase, to kneel at somebody's feet, are to, to prostrate yourself. Sorry, yeah, to prostrate yourself, to bow down, to kneel, to grovel, to abase oneself. This man was degraded in front of Jesus because he recognized the authority and the power in Christ himself. The demons that this man had within him knew exactly who Jesus was from the moment Jesus stepped out of the boat. 
Even the demons that were within this man recognized the power of Jesus and the authority that he had. And he ran and he knelt at the feet of Jesus. This is what's crazy to me. A demon recognizes Jesus or a a legion of demons recognize Jesus and they submit to his authority. And oftentimes we as just normal, healthy individuals, we don't even feel like we should submit to Jesus at times, right? Again, I mentioned it earlier. We feel like we've got this. I can do this all on my own. I can live my life without the power of Christ. I've got this. We recognize that Jesus is Lord of our lives, but what does that mean to you? Does Jesus really reign in your life? Or is he on the sidelines? For this demon-possessed man, at that moment, Jesus was everything for him. And then to see this naked, strong man uh, with demons who is probably still bleeding from places where he's cut himself, he has run to Jesus and he's kneeling at his feet. And what makes it even stranger is that it says, he screams from the top of his lungs. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Like you're inches from Jesus and you're screaming at the top of your lungs. It's got to be a weird feeling for Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, just thank you. I'm out, right? First of all, I have to say, I'm thankful you're not Jesus because this man needed help, right? And then the next moment in scripture, Jesus asks him what his name is. And we've talked about in here the importance of the names, right? We've talked about Jacob and how he was the trickster. And his name meant one who was to usurp others, right? Like there's there's a lot of power when it comes to name. And this, this man says, my name is Legion. Out of the voice of the man, my name is Legion. That's not the man's birth name. In this moment, it's clear that his whole identity is wrapped up in evil. In this demonic, strange situation that many of us don't quite understand and kind of makes us feel a little weird if we're honest with ourselves, right? He says, my name is Legion because we are many. And we don't know how many. We just know many, right? There were clearly enough demons in this one man to inhabit an entire herd of pigs. And scripture tells us the number of the pigs, about 2,000. It's a lot of pigs. So I want to read this to you on the screen. It says this, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake where they drowned. I don't know that he had enough spirits to fill all 2,000 pigs, but when you see a herd of 2,000 pigs running to the water, that's got to be a sight, right? So in this moment, we get to see another piece of scripture that we might recognize before. What do we know about pigs? They do a delicious bacon at that, yeah. But what else do we know about pigs when you're talking about Jewish men and women? They're, they're forbidden. Pigs are unclean. So what I think is happening here is we have Jesus moving to a small area that's filled with Gentiles, right? The pig herders are not going to be Jewish people. That's not something that happened unless you're the story of the prodigal son, right? Where it talks about how desperate this man was that he helped to serve the food to pigs in order to just eat some of it, right? 
pigs are a no-no for Hebrew people. They're unclean. You can't eat them. You can't be around them. So what I think is happening is Jesus is moving from the first time out of this Jewish central place, and he's coming to a small territory that is uh, not maybe not explicitly filled with Gentiles, but there are people who are outside the Jewish faith who are clearly here, and Jesus is moving among them for the first time. This is a big deal if we don't see that in the story. They couldn't be eaten. The pig's skin couldn't be touched. You couldn't make leather out of pigs. Pigs for Jewish people were worthless. They were totally and completely unacceptable. This means that we can infer that these people were not Jewish people that Jesus was around, right? And so Jesus shows up in a Gentile region near an unclean pig farm to heal a man who may or may not have been a Gentile himself. We don't know. Jesus is clearly beginning the move of his gospel outside of just the Jewish realm, and he's touching the lives of people who are not Jewish. They're not Hebrew, and he's doing an incredible work. He's doing something radical here, and I don't think we realize just how radical it is until we dive into the story, right? So let's take another look at the pigs. So these pigs ran down the hill, and they dove into the lake, and they drowned. Have you ever seen 2,000 pigs floating in a lake? No. And I imagine it was absolutely nuts visual to see that, right? And so the men who were tending pigs, Scripture tells us that they get up and they go into town and they begin to tell everybody. So this says in verse 14, and you can, you, I don't know if I put it on the screen or not, but it says, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in town and the countryside and the people who went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw a man who had been possessed with the legion of demons sitting there dressing in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to get up and get the heck out. The pig herders told everybody what they had seen. And I bet, here's what's crazy. Like, I don't know that they saw what happened with the demon-possessed man because it says that there was a herd of pigs nearby. They may not have seen, the herders may not have seen what was going on with Jesus and this man filled with spirits. All they saw was their herd of pigs running to the lake and diving in. So they may not have even understood what was going on, but they began to tell everybody about it. And then it seems like everybody from the surrounding areas came out to see what 2,000 floating pigs look like. <coughs> and then when they get out there, they see more than just pigs in the lake. They see the man they recognized who was demon-possessed, a man who had been out of his mind and screaming and yelling and cutting himself and so strong that no one could bind him. No one could, could take him out of the tombs. And they see him sitting in front of Jesus in his right mind. And he's dressed. And he's, for all intents and purposes, normal. And at this point, they begin to connect the dots. This man has done something incredible to heal this particular man. And then they begin to tell the story. Those who were with Jesus told the story. Jesus delivered this man from those demons and those demons went into the pigs and the pigs went into the water. Jesus went with an entourage, right? Everywhere Jesus went, he wasn't just with his 12 disciples. He was with the, the 12 disciples and other followers. 
We've read this a couple weeks ago, but in the, the chapter leading up to Mark 5, the one that we're looking at this morning, we can read in Mark 4 at the very end what was going on right before. It says in verse 35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. He's talking about the lake. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So it was Jesus, disciples, and a number of other followers that were leaving one side of the lake, going over to this area where Jesus knew this man was. The next part of this says, a furious squall came up, right? We recognize this. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up to say to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And the very next story is a story of delivering a man from demons. These disciples had got to have their minds blown. He just had calmed the storm. He gets over to the other side of the lake and he sees this demoniac being healed. Like there was a group of people who saw what Jesus did and the word was gonna begin to spread no matter what, right? When we see something miraculous or really cool happening, who do we tell? Who do you go to, right? I tell my wife. I also tell Facebook because I think everybody needs to know, right? Words doesn't, it doesn't stay still. When we tell people about experiences we've had, have you ever eaten at a terrible restaurant? Of course you have. And you told everybody about how bad it was. Don't go there. The food is awful. The service is terrible. People are mean. It's disgusting. There are roaches. Like we tell those stories. When something miraculous happened, Joshua and Carolyn have a baby. I'm telling everybody. I'm posting it to Facebook. I'm excited to repost their pictures. It's, it's a wonderful thing. We tell good or bad news, no matter what it is, to everybody we can. We become evangelists, things that we don't necessarily need to evangelize. But in this moment, it's clear that the people who are following Jesus around are going to tell that story. The people who were with Jesus, who had seen the entire interaction, began to tell those people who showed up from town. The disciples and the other people in the boats were witnesses to this event. They were eyewitnesses. They see what Jesus was doing. They couldn't stop sharing what Jesus had done. And they had proof because all of them were eyewitnesses. It wasn't Jesus by himself telling the story. It was Jesus, his 12 disciples, and all the other people in all the other boats who began to verify the story. This is true. The formerly demon-possessed man was now sitting quietly and he was healed. And I imagine nearby there's like an island of dead pigs. So there was really no doubting just what kind of authority that Jesus had. And what does scripture say the people's response is? Oh, wow, this is so great. Jesus, come and teach us about what you've done. No. Holy crap, get out of town, you guy. Like, you, you just murdered 2,000 pigs. They don't care about the man's life who is healed. They care about their possession. They care about the money. They care about those 2,000 dead pigs floating in the lake. Get out of here. So Jesus gets back in his boat, and he moves on. There's a lot to be said about that. Jesus goes 
where Jesus is invited. And if we don't want Jesus around, he won't stay, right? If we're not ready to have Jesus do something miraculous in our lives, all we have to say is, no thanks, and Jesus will get in his boat and he'll go somewhere else. Friends, we have to be willing to say yes to Jesus. We have to be willing to just allow ourselves to experience what God has for us by inviting Jesus to act in our lives. Because I promise you, when we put up a spiritual wall, Jesus says, okay, I get it. I'm not welcome. I'll go somewhere else to do something miraculous. There's a lot of implications that this means for us in our worship, in our church, in our personal lives, in every aspect of who we are. Be inviters of Christ, right? Don't be hesitant. Don't be, Jesus isn't going to do something that's going to ruin your life. Jesus is going to heal you miraculously and do something incredible for you. That's clear. But it might mean some pigs are going to have to die in the process. It might mean some of our periphery has to be let go for Jesus to do what he's going to do. So let's talk about how this man's life changed. Okay, so now we see him sitting in his right mind. He's fully dressed. He's aware. He's cognizant. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. His life has been changed forever. And let's be clear that Jesus makes a difference. If we allow Jesus to heal us, Jesus will heal us. Okay? And I don't know in every situation that's going to look different. I, I know that. But Jesus makes a difference. Period. Can you imagine being healed like this man was healed? Can you imagine your whole life being shunned by society, living among the gravestones, naked, without food, without shelter, without hope, and then Jesus comes up and offers you an immediate healing? That's a lot. Jesus, in this moment, healed a man who was absolutely lost, out of his mind, and Jesus totally restores him. Just by speaking it into reality, Jesus restores him. Can you imagine what the people in town thought when they roll up and they recognize this man who's got his life all of a sudden put together? I'm sure they would have been amazed, but they were more amazed by the death of the pigs than they were of the restoration of this man's life. And then instead of asking Jesus to heal other people, instead of saying, hey, where did this power come from? How do you do this? Jesus, tell us about you. They say, you need to get out of here. This man's life was given back to him. And then this man says to Jesus, wait, 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 wait. Hang on. You're getting back in your boat. Take me with you. Let's read this together. In verse 18, it says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. It didn't just say, hey, can I go with you? He begged him, Jesus, don't leave me here. I can't stay here anymore. Clearly, I've been outcast at this place. You have changed my life. Take me with you. I want to go with you. And then verse 19 says, Jesus did not let him go, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So this is the important part. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Do you know what the Decapolis is, anybody? Here's what's crazy. Jesus says, go to your, do what? Something 
something 10, absolutely right. So Jesus says, go to your hometown and tell everybody what, what you've experienced here. And the man doesn't go to his hometown. The Decapolis was actually 10 cities in the ancient Near East. And they were called the Decapolis because they were like-minded in, in, uh, in the way they uh, approached life. They had uh, similar um, traditions and, and all this kind of stuff. They were a group of 10 cities who were powerful and they were part of the Roman Empire. And Jesus in that moment says, go home. And he says, I'm not gonna stop at my house. And he goes around all these 10 cities and it says, all the people were amazed. Some of these cities, most of these cities were actually Gentile. They were not Jewish cities. There were two of them that were in the, the Jewish countryside, but the rest of them were not Jewish. This man became, we always think about Paul as becoming the first evangelist of the Christian faith, but this man in Mark chapter 5 becomes the first evangelist to people outside of the Jewish tradition. This is a powerful story. He begs Jesus, take me with you, but then Jesus gives him a mission. Nope, go home, tell everybody what you've experienced. The Decapolis, and I'm going to read this to you. I forgot I had this in here. Was a group of 10 cities on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire in the southeastern Levant in the first century BC up to the first century AD. They formed a group because of their language, culture, location, and political status with each functioning as an autonomous city-state dependent on Rome. The Decapolis was the center of Greek and Roman culture in a region which otherwise was populated by Semitic-speaking people. Most of the Decapolis region was located in Jordan, with the exception of Damascus, which was in Syria, and Hippos and Scythopolis. Those two were the cities in Israel. This healed man travels around the Roman Empire talking about Jesus before anybody else did. And we miss that if we don't read this story in depth. The reason I wanted to talk about this story of Jesus today is that it becomes for us a perfect example of how we can begin to tell the stories of Jesus to people we know. When God shows up and does something amazing in our lives, each one of us should be willing to testify about that. I don't, I don't know if you guys have talked to Tim lately, but every time I see Tim and he's around somebody new, Tim is like, this man saved my life, right? Talking about me spending some time in prayer with him while Tim was in the hospital, Tim didn't know he was coming out of the hospital. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the incredible gift that God gives to the doctors, Tim was healed. And he's obviously out of the hospital and he's back to life relatively normal until he got COVID. <laughs> but Tim is somebody who, in, when he's meeting anybody for the first time and I'm around, he's like, this man saved my life. I, I have to be very clear, Tim, I did not. I prayed for you and Jesus healed you. We have to be like that. When we recognize that God has done something good in our lives, we have to be willing to share that with other people. And oftentimes we're not because we feel like, gosh, they might look at us differently or it's uncomfortable. I believe that God still heals today. I've seen it. God still delivers today through the name and the power of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ. God is still working and we've stopped talking about it so people don't expect it anymore. But it's just like Jesus to show up in a person's worst moment and to change everything about their future, right? The story here of the Gerasene demoniac, or sorry, demoniac 
is another example of just how much God loves his people, how God wants the best for them and for each and every one of us still to this day, God wants the best for us. So if you've been healed in some way, tell the story. If you've been transformed from the person that you were to something different in the name of Jesus, then tell somebody that story. If you've seen God work miraculous ways behind the scenes in somebody else's life, tell that story too. Has ever helped you choose the right path instead of choosing the wrong path? Tell the story. If we could all do better about telling the stories of Jesus to the world, we could make the world a better place. I believe that with my whole heart. A more accepting place of the miraculous, a place that looks more like the kingdom of God where the lowliest are brought up and the proud are brought down and life is good for more people. So friends, this week and always, let us be people who are tellers of the stories of Jesus, how God moves in our lives, how God works in our lives, and how Christ restores us and heals us. Let us not be afraid or ashamed to tell people about the workings of Jesus. For when we share our faith with others, we're planting seeds of faith in them that will grow into salvation. This is a great story. And we can learn a lot of it if we hear the words. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story, a story that it sounds so strange and it's so unique. But God, you use this story to talk about how you're willing to work in our lives, even when the world has given up on us. Even when we're rejected and we're alone, even when we're sometimes out of our minds, God, you show up in the most powerful way. And you promise us through the story that we can and will be healed if we call on the name of Jesus. So gracious God, help us to be like this man who encounters you and is unafraid and unashamed to travel around all the world telling the world about how good you are. God, help us to be people that see the value of Scripture and help us to share the stories of your kingdom in the world around us. God, use us to be your voice. Use us to be your hands and feet at work in the world around us. Help us to spread your word even when the world puts up a wall and says, nope, not here, not now. Go somewhere else. Let us not be afraid or ashamed to go somewhere else. Gracious Lord Jesus, we love you. Continue to heal us in the areas of our lives that we need healing. Continue to be our helper, to be our advocate, to be our intercessor. Because Jesus, we need you and the world needs you. God, we love you and we thank you for this time that we've had together to hear your word, to hear the stories of Jesus and to find ways that we can apply the messages that we've heard to our own lives. Go with us as we leave this place, Holy Spirit, empower us to be the people who look more like Jesus and less like the world. God, equip us through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com, or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.